Thanks for joining us today. We believe God is going to do great things in your life, and we want to hear about it. Send us your story at mystory@summitsa.com and let us know what He's done for you through this ministry. If you'd like to partner with us or bless us with a financial gift, go to summitsa.com and give an amount that best works for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. A businessman had to catch a flight. He arrived early at the Newark airport. He checked in. They gave him his ticket. He had a little time to kill, so he saw a scale, a weighing scale, and it said, your fortune and your weight, 25 cents. So he stood up on it and put a quarter in, and it said, boom, boom, it punched out a ticket. And the ticket said, your name is Jim Smith. You weigh uh, 210 pounds, and you're catching a 225 to Detroit. And the guy thought, this is crazy. Somebody's playing a trick on me. So he took another quarter out and put it in. Out popped the ticket, and the ticket said, your name is still Jim Smith. You still weigh 210 pounds, and you're still catching the 225 to Detroit. I mean, he just, now he's really thinking somebody's spying on him, something's going on. So he goes in the men's room, takes his garment bag, and he changes clothes. Then he comes back out. He puts another quarter in, and it said, your name is still Jim Smith. You still weigh 210 pounds, and you just missed the 225 to Detroit. So don't miss what we're about to say today as we engage in part two of our series, Living Beyond Fear. How do you go from fear-based living to faith-based living? A sociologist named Barry Glasner published a book a few years ago called The Culture of Fear. He says, we live in the culture of fear. We're the most worried society that's ever lived. He said, for example, life expectancy is more than doubled this century. We're able to cure more diseases than any time in history. He said, no group of human beings has ever been healthier, but at the same time, no group of human beings has ever been more worried about their health. A journalist named Bob Garfield tracked health articles from USA Today, New York Times, and the Washington Post by experts telling us how sick we are. According to the experts in these three publications, 59 million Americans have heart disease, 53 million suffer from migraines, 25 million from osteoporosis, 16 million from obesity, 12 million from severe disorders like brain injuries, and millions more from cancer. That totals up to 543 million Americans that are seriously sick, which is pretty shocking since we only have 300 million people in the country. Glasner writes, either as a society we're doomed or somebody is seriously double-dipping. We are a culture of fear. And it's not just the media that produces it. A lot of it we learn in our families. We were conditioned to fear when we grew up. I think last week I mentioned rare was a mother who sent her kids off to school saying, okay, Bobby, live big, embrace danger, take risks, see you tonight. It, it never happens. Usually it's be careful, watch out. It's dangerous out there. So it's hard to live beyond fear because we live in a culture of fear, not just because of the media, our family background, but there's actually a physiological component to fear that's hardwired chemically into our nervous system when fear gets produced. 
people that map chromosomes or genes identified the SLC6A4 chromosome and named it the worry gene. So there's a genetic predisposition that certain people have, which means they're going to struggle more with anxiety and worry throughout their life than most other people. People that have the short version of that chromosome are more likely to worry than people that have the long version of it. Now that I said that, how many of you are worried you got the short gene? Yeah. <laughs> See, I think it's really clear that given our culture, the way we're wired, you will not drift into a life beyond fear. Life on its own in our world and culture today does not tend to produce courageous faith. It'll take some action on each of our parts. But I know for a fact God does not want us to live in a culture of fear as believers. Fear is generally the result of increased vulnerability and a diminished sense of power. When I have an increased sense of vulnerability and a diminished sense of power, I live in fear. Low-income, low-wage minority groups already have a sense of fear because they have an increased sense of vulnerability and a diminished sense of power. I don't have any options. I don't have any resources. I don't have any status. That can happen to anybody. And God doesn't want us to experience that, so God says, I'm going to be with you. Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 2. God says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters in great trouble, you will not be destroyed. When you pass through the rivers of difficulty, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. So God promises he will be with us. But here's the point. The vast majority of people that just hear this information that God is present it's, it's not enough to help them overcome the fear deeply ingrained in them. So becoming a champion fear manager requires more than information. It requires action, some action of faith. Now, fear is designed to lead all of us to action. Fear is designed to be a self-correcting response, kind of like hunger. You realize you're hungry, you're motivated to eat, so you're not hungry anymore. It's designed to be self-correcting, and some of you have really corrected. And fear is, fear, you'll get that on the way home. Fear is designed to be self-correcting. It alerts you of danger or something that's wrong, and it motivates you to take action so the problem is corrected, so you're not afraid anymore. That's the purpose. But what happens generally is that a lot of people get immobilized by fear. It gets distorted. It becomes chronic. It gets toxic. And instead of empowering us to take action, it paralyzes us. So moving from fear-based living to faith-based living will involve a step of action towards what I fear. It means approaching my fear, not avoiding my fear. It's taking a wise, God-honoring risk. And my hope this morning is that many of you will identify at least one area in your life where fear is holding you back, and you'll resolve to take one action step. You're going to trust God to take one step, at least one step towards it this week. So I want to talk about what fear avoidance looks like, and then what approaching fear and taking action looks like. So in avoidance, 
You try to escape anxiety and worry by evading a problem, not facing it. You just hope the problem causing you to worry is going to magically disappear. Then I won't have to be afraid anymore. In fact, the first recorded human response to fear is avoidance, all the way back to the book of Genesis. There's no fear in the world. There's no fear in human experience until Adam disobeys God and he sins. God comes to be with Adam. Adam's not there. God says, missed you in the early service. Adam, where were you? That's just me talking. And Adam said, God, I heard you, but I was afraid, so I hid. Now, Adam could have repented. He could have confessed. But fear generally leads people into hiding, into avoiding, instead of facing what the problem is. But it doesn't solve anything. And it didn't solve anything for Adam. And we aren't fooling God, and he didn't fool God by hiding. There are a number of ways people try to avoid their fears. First is procrastination. There's a phone call I need to make. It's important, but it's terribly unpleasant. But because I don't want to face the unpleasantness, I put off making the call. The longer I delay because I know I ought to be taking care of it, the more unpleasant it becomes, the more I put it off. You start thinking, I hope the other person dies or something, so I won't have to make the call. But, but usually life doesn't work out that way, does it? But that's the temptation. And then there's denial. You know, what if I go down the wrong path? I'm afraid to make a decision about a career. What if I choose the wrong one? That'd be horrible. So they don't make a decision. What if I choose the wrong school to attend? That would be terrible. What if they make a commitment to marry the wrong person? That would be horrible. So people end up avoiding decisions for weeks, months, years, and sometimes a lifetime. They don't even like going to a restaurant with a great big menu. What if I order the wrong thing? That's why some of you won't go to Cheesecake Factory. That sucker looks like a New York phone directory, doesn't it? It's huge. And then you watch people just go into a panic mode. <laughs> what are you having? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. So here's the deal with avoidance. It's tempting because it gives you short-term relief. It's tempting because it promises short-term relief. Then I don't have to face what I'm anxious about. So while it promises short-term relief from fear, anxiety, it becomes a long-term prison. It doesn't solve a thing. And as soon as I choose avoidance over courage and facing the problem, I'm announcing to myself, I can't cope. I can't handle it. I can't face reality. And it begins to destroy your self-worth, your self-esteem. How many of you ever saw the movie A Few Good Men with Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise? A lot of you did. Well, there's a classic scene I want you to watch in the movie where Tom Cruise is interrogating Jack Nicholson on a witness chair, and Tom shouts out, I just want the truth. Watch it. Oh, yeah, go Jack. And that's what the enemy whispers to everybody trapped in fear. You can't handle the truth. But Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And you got to decide who you trust, Jesus or Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. Is it going to be that or you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free? Jesus said there's no truth you and I can't handle together. Whatever that truth is about your state of heart, about the state of your life, your health, your job, your finances, your marriage, your relationships, there's no truth you and I together cannot handle. But fear and the enemy continue to whisper, you can't handle the truth. You've got to run and hide. And when God tells people to fear not, 
he is not saying to you, make the feeling of fear go away. In general, that's not possible. Generally, God is calling people to take an action to trust him. And fear holds people back from doing that simple thing. God says, I want you to obey me, listen, in spite of your fear. Just do it, trust me, afraid. Just do it. I don't want you to wait until the fear goes away because you'll wait the rest of your life. I want you to obey me now. I want you to take a step of action. And God says that if we trust him and obey him, we're going to experience power at work and discover we're not vulnerable and we're not powerless in our world. But you can't wait for fear to go away. You've got to act in faith. So when it comes to fear, you've got to face it directly, take a step of action towards it. For fear to ever diminish, you have to face it head on. You have to. And take a step of action. It's scary. It's frightening. Of course it is. But if you want to smash it, you've got to face it head on. You cannot run. God says, fear not. And that's what he's saying. I don't care if you've got to deal with a, 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 a substance abuse issue, a sexual abuse issue. Somebody's blackmailing you. I know as tough as it sounds, it could be an employer with sexual harassment. You're, it's a good-paying job. You don't want to lose your job, but you, you, you're in a dilemma. You need the courage to face him down. I, I watched a secretary uh, in, a, in a company I worked for when I was right out of college get up out of her chair and slap a salesman across the face so hard it, his face went over to the wall. I never seen anything like that. And he had been doing these little sexual innuendo jokes out, out of order to her, and she didn't want him. Well, she handled that. Now, she could have gotten fired, I guess, but uh, that, he, never, he, went, he never went near that, that desk ever again. And you may have to say to an employer, if this keeps up, I'm going to report this. I'm going to, and I tell you, today, that's catastrophic. And so you, you said, well, I might lose money. Well, you might, but you're not going to know what God can do for you until you step up and face that fear. And I'm just saying, this is not something that's treated lightly, but there's a limit in which you say, enough is enough, and you have to face that fear. You do. You do. So let me illustrate this in the life of Elijah. He was a prophet of God. He wasn't someone that's incapable of courageous behavior. In Elijah's day, Israel had been led into idolatry by a wicked queen named Jezebel. And old Jezzy was powerful. She was evil. She was formidable. Her husband was King Ahab. And I'll give you a little bio on him. God said he's the worst king he ever had. How about that? Of all the nonsense in the Bible, God said, Ahab, you're the worst. And he was, he was influenced by Jezebel, his wife's evil. He's a weak, passive, sorry, wussy husband, and he's a king. So Elijah couldn't stand the fact that they had led the nation into idolatry away from the true God of Israel, and now they're worshiping Baal, and God calls on Elijah to take a stand against them, and he did. So Elijah lines up all these false prophets of Baal on one side, himself on the other, the people of Israel and the world are all watching. And then he said to the nation of people, this is 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. Choose this day. How long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, serve him. If the Lord Yahweh is God, serve him. It says, but the people were completely silent. Then he challenged the prophets to put Baal to the test. Let's see who answers by fire. He let them take the whole day. They cut themselves. They stabbed themselves. They danced. They screamed. They shouted. They did everything. Nothing. And then old 
Elijah gets up and he prays about 14, 17 words. That's for some of you who need to know you can pray briefly. Especially when you go to lunch, okay? This sucker got fire from heaven in 14 to 17 words. That was it. And all of these prophets of Baal are destroyed by, he kills them all. But he's vulnerable to fear. And after Elijah had killed all the false prophets of Baal, King Ahab told Jezebel, oh, he ran to mommy. King Ahab ran to Jezebel. I can't believe it. Elijah's killed all of our prophets. And Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, probably an email today, said, may the gods deal severely with me if by tomorrow I don't have you killed. So Elijah has to decide, is he going to approach the problem? Is he going to avoid the problem? Well, listen to what the text says in 1 Kings 19, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, he left his servant there and went on a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. So what would you say Elijah did? Approach or avoid? Avoid. Big time avoidance. He felt like he couldn't cope. Here's the ultimate fear. I can't cope. I can't handle it. I've had enough. I might as well die. That's what he says. That's what parents say to their children. I've had just about enough out of you. But smart children know that when a parent says, I've had just about enough, it doesn't mean I could tolerate a little more. It means I'm at my limit with you. And that's what Elijah is saying. God, I'm at my limit. I can't cope. I've had enough. A classic example of what fear and worry do to the human mind. They cause you to start thinking in a distorted, unrealistic way where you start attacking yourself. My life's not worth living. I'm no better than my answer. Why was I born? I might as well die. You just need a good slap in the face. Hey, wake up. Come back. Come back. You see what it's doing to you? It does it to people all the time. Now, where did God ever ask Elijah to compare himself to his ancestors? Where did he ever have to measure up to them? Nowhere. But worry does that to you. I'm not good enough. Well, maybe the husband who left you, maybe that sucker's not good enough. Maybe it hadn't got a thing to do with you. Let him go kill himself, not you. I've been tempted to shoot somebody else, but never myself. I... Okay. I just, you know, you and I over a cup of coffee, this is sort of how we'd talk. So where did, he said, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough. That's what fear has done to his mind. This is overwhelming to me, he says. Now, God doesn't shame him, but we find in 1 Kings 19, God sends an angel to Elijah, and he puts Elijah down to sleep, wakes him up, gives him some more food, then tells him to go back to sleep. And the angel is basically treating Elijah like we do a toddler. Have a snack, Billy, take a nap, and I'll talk to you. That's what he's done here. There's a great scene where Elijah experiences an earthquake, a mighty wind, and a fire, and then he hears God speak in a still, small voice. He learns, hey, God is with me. But he doesn't just get confirmation. God talks to Elijah about the situation. And God doesn't do what Elijah asked God to do and generally what most of us want him to do. God does not say, you know, Elijah, I've been thinking about it. You're right. You can't handle this. It's bigger than you are. You're dead right. You just wait right here on this mountain. Keep eating. I'll take care of Jezebel, and I'll take care of everything that's created fear in you. 
And then when it's all safe and all your problems are solved, you can come back and play. But God rarely does that, folks, ever. God's first words to Elijah are, Elijah, you got to go back down the way you came, back down the mountain, face the same problem you ran away from. And by the way, yep, they're all still there. Jezebel's personality hadn't changed. She hadn't been through a Dale Carnegie course, nothing. You're going to have to go and face her. And what God says to Elijah is what he says to you and me. My plan for you is not that you run away from what you're afraid of. It's not that you get airlifted out of it. My plan for you is to overcome it by acting in faith. And when you take one step of faith towards me and deal with what you're most afraid of, you will set in motion a spiritual dynamic that's powerful, and you'll see my power at work in your life. But until you step forward, nothing's going to happen. And that's, that's when your faith gets strong. You know, you could go join the most popular gym in San Antonio, buy the most expensive workout clothes possible, be color-coordinated, go to the gym, see the most up-to-date modern equipment that's known to man to work every part of your body, and you could walk through the gym and out of the gym, and your clothes are not going to fall off of you. Nothing's going to happen in your nice clothes in a nice gym with the best equipment if you don't face it and push something. Right? Okay, I, well, how is your problem going to get better just sitting in church? It's not going to get better. You're going to have to leave here and go face it and do something to deal with that fear. That's what God's trying to show us here. And then guess what? You're going to be filled with tremendous confidence, and your faith is going to get stronger and stronger, and you're going to have confidence that you and God can handle about anything. And one thing after another that used to produce enormous fear in you won't after a while. You know, get around people that have been to this rodeo a few times, and they're still standing. They can give you good advice. You can draw courage from other people. If fear is toxic, courage can be too. And spread that stuff all over the place, because people are terrified about everything. So take that step of faith. And when you do, God says things are going to happen. Elijah said, I'm afraid of Jezebel. God said, I know it. It's okay. I'm not asking you to stop feeling afraid. I'm asking you in the midst of your fear, will you trust me? Will you go do what I said, fear or no fear? So Elijah goes back down the mountain. He's still in trouble. A death contract is still on his life. Ahab is still evil. So is Jezebel. But one thing has changed, and it's Elijah who says to himself, now I can handle this with the help of my God. I have enough power and strength. God and I together can handle this. Two chapters later, Ahab has stolen a man's vineyard and had him killed because he wouldn't sell it to him. And we wonder, hmm, standing next to power and evil like this, King Ahab, will Elijah cower back, shrink back? Will he be afraid? Will he bite his tongue? Will he try to be politically correct? Will he try to stay on Ahab and Jezebel's good side? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 21, he says a very courageous thing to Ahab. You and your wife Jezebel are on a direct course to destruction because of the evil in your heart. You're on a collision course with God, my friend. And because of Elijah's courageous obedience, he inspired a whole nation and protected the people's faith. And thousands of years later, that brave act is still celebrated and remembered to this day. Because God told him at a crisis moment in his life, 
go back the way you came. And Elijah said, all right, I will, and I'll face my greatest fear. I'm thinking of little Esther, who in the culture as a, as a little Jewish girl, in a pagan heathen culture, she was chosen in a beauty contest. The, the wicked king does not know she's Jewish, and he's ordered all the uh, Jews in the nation to be killed by, because of Haman's wicked influence. And Mordecai, her uncle, says, okay, you got to go in and get this law changed. So put on some Chanel number five. Put on some lingerie, a little bit of cleavage, soft music, and I want you to go in and knock him out. And let's pray that he's going to give you what you want. Because stupid kings would say, the half of my kingdom, what do you want? That's what happens to men generally when they get psyched up. <laughs> men need to know that, right? Yeah, we need to know that. And, and, and he says, she said, now, if I go in and he hadn't invited me, the law says he can have me killed. You didn't have any troubled marriages in those days. <laughs> That's true, but I am only teasing you. You understand. She said, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to go in and maybe, maybe I can save a nation. And because she faced her fear, that he, she could be killed. She had a life of luxury. She had, she had Louis Vuitton, Chanel purses. She had all the designer clothes. She had a little BMW X convertible. She had servants. She had diamonds. She had all the David Yermans you could want. She had everything going. She's in the, I mean, get the picture. People just read that. Get the picture. She's got a lot to lose, including her life. And she sacrificed it all to face her fear and ended up saving a whole nation. And that little girl, all we know is that she saved a whole nation. Yeah, just because of her ability to face her fear. Now, if Elijah had waited till he felt courage, or if Esther had, he'd still be on that mountain. So you've got to act in faith first. And folks, every one of us, like Elijah, comes to God with some fear. Maybe your fear involves an external risk. Maybe it's a calling into a new ministry that you've never been involved in before. Maybe it's going out to our desk out in these different lobbies, visiting the different ministries of our church this weekend, and deciding you're going to either get in a connect group, a small group. Well, I'm afraid. I don't want to get around a small group. Well, face your fear. Face it. It could be life-changing. You could meet a life friend. You never know what may happen in that. Somebody that has a key to something about your future. You just don't know. But as long as you stay back in the prison of fear, I'll tell you what you're going to get, nothing. You're going to get the same thing you've got now. And if that's not pleasing to you, then enjoy it. Suck it up because it's not going to change until you face your fear, right? Maybe God's calling you to a new job or a vocation. Maybe it's to take a financial risk. Maybe God's calling you to reveal yourself to another person and be vulnerable. Maybe you have an addiction. Maybe there's something going on. You know it's, it's really bad. It's got, it's got you by the tail, and you need to admit you're not winning in an area of your life. That takes guts. That takes courage to face that fear. But it won't get better till you do. Maybe God's asking you to acknowledge the truth about some sin that terrifies you. Maybe God is saying it's time to get really serious about your spiritual search. 
and you're afraid of what God may ask you to do. You've been sitting back, sitting back, sitting back. You know God loves you. He wants to be your Savior. He's got a good plan for your life, but you're afraid he, He'll want you to do something you don't want to do, or you'll hide behind the excuse, well, I just can't live a Christian life. Well, nobody did. Jesus did. Okay? I never lived the Christian life a day in my life, so while you catch your breath, nobody else has in here either. That's why I got a substitute. Jesus did it for me. Thank God he did. That's called grace. I don't have to live up to any. I want to be, I want to be a better man. But I'm saying I can't, I can't live up to the whole standard of Jesus' perfection. But he did. So he says, I'll give it to you. I'll, I'll give it to you as a gift if you'll come to me, if you'll give me your life. As a general rule, God doesn't say to us, okay, I'll take away whatever frightens you. I'll take Jezebel out of the picture. I'll make things better. No, that's not generally the way it happens. I heard a ski instructor in Colorado tell a beginner skier, when you're going downhill on a real steep slope, you'll want to lean back because you're afraid to lean forward. It's scary. But that's a big mistake, he said, because if you lean back, you're going to be out of control. What you must learn to do is to lean forward, lean forward, lean into the hill, which kind of feels scary. But it's actually, he said, the only safe way to go down that hill. Lean forward, the instructor said. Trust me. So here's the deal. In skiing and life, you've got to lean into your fear. Lean into that mountain. You must face head on anything for which you are most frightened. You will never grow any other way. Every time you have a problem that creates fear and you ask God for help and you face it head on, you increase your faith that God can handle anything. The, if you start winning in the little things, you start getting more confident in the big things. If I trust God in my giving with, with a small amount and I see that he's faithful, I, I have no less confidence when it's a larger amount. It, it, that's true in anything. When I see God looking back over my lifetime and watch God save me, help me, deliver me. Guess what? I, what did he do for Israel? He said, well, he would always tell them, remember. Remember how I got you out of Egypt? Remember how your clothes didn't wear out? Remember how I fed you with manna? You didn't have to go to H-E-B. I, I gave you water from a rock. Remember how I opened the Red Sea? What's he trying to do? Encouraging them for every new challenge they're going to face. You've got to start somewhere. If, if it ain't but a 10-pound pink weight, you've got to start there. Before you go for, bench press 400 pounds, you've got to start where you are with what you have. And God will make it stronger. There's no quick step to success. No quick step to a, a great life. It's just little by little. Little steps where you are give you confidence that God is able and that God is faithful. And so whatever would shake me up when I was in my 20s, well, that's water off a duck's back. That's no big deal. I mean, if we, if we have a, a, a couple of thousand dollar need for something, I, I think that's chunk change. What, that's nothing. It's nothing because we started off with hundreds and thousands and then a few million, and then we moved here with lots a million. Well, guess what? How, how many of you know my, my, my fear factor uh, goes down, my faith factor goes up you didn't get there overnight but I tell you what we every time we could hear that Jack Nicholson saying you can't handle the truth <laughs> you're not going to make it who told you you could do that where do you think that's going to come from that how are you going what if something goes bad what if what if what if what if 
Well, I'll know forever that I took a big step of faith and I still come out the winter. I don't care. I don't care. And you ought to think the same way. Go for it. Give it a shot. Give it a try. So it only works if you move forward to attack that faith. So you decide today. What one step can you take this week towards constructively addressing the fear that worries you the most? And make a commitment that you're going to take action between now and next week. However small, one step of obedience and faith in God. Instead of worrying, you're going to take action. One step. You can do it. One step toward facing your fear. And it will release the power of God in your life in a way nothing else will. And just remember, as you do it, God will be with you. I'm telling you, there is nothing. There's no truth. There's no, there's no diagnosis. There's nothing you and God together can't handle because God says, I will be with you. If you walk through the water, you won't drown. If you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. I will be with you. This weekend, we're celebrating Martin Luther King uh, holiday on Monday, and I hope everybody has an enjoyable weekend. But can you imagine the courage of the people in the civil rights movement who had to face water cannons, uh, beatings, imprisonments, uh, sometimes actual murder without recourse, and they had to face imprisonment in jail just for basic freedom we take for granted, just, just to eat where you want to, when you want to, or ride on a bus, or just simple, simple stuff that we take. People had to risk their life to make that come true. So while it's a nice holiday, uh, I hope the younger generation of minority groups appreciate the price that your parents and grandparents had to fight just to enjoy basic civil rights. Amen. You know, do I have a picture? Guys, that picture I was, uh, views of uh, Mr. King as we do? I think this is kind of interesting. That was a 17-minute speech that changed the world. And what's interesting is that was not the speech he prepared. It was on Vietnam. And Mahalia Jackson, that great gospel singer, was right behind him. And if you go on Google, you can see. And Mahalia was shouting at him, Preach the dream, Martin. Preach the dream. She had heard him do some semblance of that speech in a church. And she said, At this moment, at this time, preach the dream. And the rest is history. And it has been used by everybody in the world facing challenge or wanting to bring change or to challenge you to get a dream about doing something positive in life. But I admire the courage of people who risked everything, including their life, to bring righteous change. You can't ignore that. You can't put that down. I never had to be afraid of being arrested. I never, I never had to face I just don't think as a white man I ever have the right to tell somebody who's black or Hispanic in a low-income minority group, I understand. That ain't possible. I never face that. I don't understand. But I do know that in the church of Jesus, injustice is wrong. Bigotry is wrong. And prejudice is wrong. And God says, I hate it. So throughout the Bible, he integrated, intermarried. Moses married an Egyptian. Joseph married an Egyptian woman. 
where people come up with their racist, bigoted ideas is not God's word. I do not know. But this is a Jesus church. Democrats don't have a dime in it. Republicans don't have anything in it. And no particular denomination does. It's a Jesus church, and everybody's welcome here. I don't care if you climb a strip pole. I don't care what your background may be. I want you to hear good news. And Jesus didn't refuse anybody that would sit and listen to him. And neither would I. Neither would I. So, hey, I hope you can handle that. If you don't like it and you want a race church or you want a political church, I'm not your boy. But if you want one good for everybody in which everybody's important and everybody has equal rights, you're in the right place. And in the kingdom of God, you're in the right place, okay? Thanks for joining us today, and may God richly bless you. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.